Good morning, people of the internet. You are listening to Debbie Radio 79.5 FM, a podcast where we discuss the movie Gross Point Blank one minute at a time. I am your co-host, Hugh David. And I'm Dev Sodega. And on today's show, we're going to be looking at Minute 30. Joining us on today's show, as every minute this week, we have Aaron Newworth of Out Now with Aaron and Abe and writer at We Live Entertainment. Welcome, Aaron. Hey. We're happy. We're here. We're at the end. We've <laughs> off. Both unfortunately, but hey, we did it. We, we got the thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. An achievement. It's in the game. So, um, Aaron, we were, we've talked a lot of talking on mic and off mic as well. But as we come to this minute here, we are still in the radio station with Martin Kibank and Debbie, his ex, both having a moment where they. Re, 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 you know, the feelings clearly never went away, never died away, and now they've pulled apart again. And uh, people are they're starting to realize and remember why they, what they really feel. Um, how we I said a few episodes ago that this is the point in the film where the romantic comedy elements come to the fore and they are played as if this was film had always been a romantic comedy at, up to this point. You know, this this film takes the moments of, which we could label as genre moments very, very seriously, you know, for all the humor and all the sad, those are, you look at it and go, yeah, that's recognizably meant to be that genre. Um, is that part of what, one of the reasons this film is so, is so beloved by yourself as well as the, 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 the other things we talked about over the week, the dialogue and the characterization. And so Do you like that sense of blending genres? It doesn't hurt. It'd be weird if I said no. It's like it's my favorite movie of all time, except for that rom com part. No, it doesn't hurt at all. Like it, no, it gives it the. What I like is that it, you know, especially now as you look at like the careers of both these people and just mm. the way film works. But with Cusack specifically, by having a movie like this, he gets to both, you know, do something that's interesting in its own way as far as like a hitman and having uh, you know a past to reconcile with but also he's as an actor you can see it as a meta commentary on like him looking back at his own career as a you know a teen actor as being a, a guy that's been in a lot of high school movies and been in a lot of high school rom-com type things or whatnot mm-hmm. um, I, you know I've, I've said in the previous show that like say anything feels like a, a kind of a what if first film where this is like a follow-up to that to some degree mm-hmm. you know obviously they're not connected specifically by anything but like the the idea that Cusack's doing this now, you can you can you can connect the dots as far as him like him and his team like writing this movie and having that kind of thing in mind like the the idea of well I did all these high school movies when I was younger what if I did a movie where I went back to high school again and I found an old girlfriend and like extrapolating it from there um, so in terms of like having this aspect of it it's kind of perfect because what you're doing from a rom-com standpoint is you've already gotten the courtship stuff out of the way. Like he has to redo it. That we'll talk about the theory. You guys will talk about that in later episodes. He has to like reestablish himself in her life. But the idea of like meet cutes and building up to the moment where he asks her out for the first time or has a first kiss or whatnot, we've got all that work is done already. And so this mm-hmm. is a movie that has a rom-com element where the, you know, finding the romance is in a, in a whole in a whole different spectrum at this point. It's it's a, how do you rekindle something that like abruptly ended? And I find to so to that extent, as far as being a romantic comedy, that's neat to be just because it feels unlike other romantic comedies, especially during the '90s when there's so many romantic comedies going out there mm. you know, that are doing mm. 
largely the same thing where you have two you know generally attractive people that somehow can't find a romance um this is where um, where like that stage is over and now it's just like these two people who are too cool for school in the way that their personas are uh like what happens when they get back together again like what's the what are the challenges there what are the obstacles so no i i, I enjoy that aspect of the movie for sure and largely because it's subverting it to its own in its own way mm-hmm. cool yeah I, I find the way that this, and, and this leads into kind of the next couple of minutes as well, but the way this scene gets broken up by Martin leaving and mm-hmm. then coming back in, really, I don't know, weird and disjointed. Like it kind of gives mm-hmm. everybody this this moment to breathe in, in the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, like I can't think of other instances where you've got this like, the two main characters of a film interacting like this and one of them just leaves and then yeah. 30 seconds later comes back like for you know for no particular reason except to to, to bail on this entire conversation to get to opt mm. out of the conversation for a minute um mm. it's it's but, a very strange structure and i'm kind yeah. of curious how they came up with it the, the closest I could think is like James L. Brooks movies. Like there's something mm. there where they're not traditional rom-coms either. Though something like broadcast news or oh, as yeah. good as it gets where yeah. the characters are because they're generally, they're smart people and, but they like, you know, they're dumb at love. Like that's kind of like the idea of a lot of his movies. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, I know not something it's not specifically structured in the same way as a scene like this, but I do think there's stuff like that in those movies that I wouldn't imagine that they're not calling on to some degree as far as characters that are like, we're doing, we're having an argument or we're having a conversation. All right, let's move on over here. Okay. We're back in the conversation again. Like there's a, there's like wordplay that I think like James L. Brooks movies, I think those, they kind of like know how to play with that kind of notion. That's the, that's the closest I can think. I, I, I agree. Yeah, with that. I no, that makes a lot of sense. Specifically structured that way. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It is a very different thing uh, to what we would normally expect at this time in this place. Um, I am just having a quick look through the fourth draft script to see if any of the these ideas are actually on there. Um, yeah. So it is on the page. They, uh, Martin. Yeah. While I'm in town for a few days, anyway. They run out of words. The moment too big for small talk. Martin gets the fear, comma, breaks it off. And I like that. I like that. They're making it his fault. He left last time. He's doing it again. (laughs) Yeah. And it then says, Debbie says, okay. Martin leaves Debbie sitting alone in disbelief. Um. Yeah, so I like that. I like how it comes to, it brings us back to Martin's issues and Martin's problems and everything from the the, the, the appointment with Dr. Oatburn and you know, we've got, now got the backstory with the parents and everything and now what we're getting is the backstory with Debbie. Except and, that, and we also get to hear Debbie's inner thoughts on this, right? Through the release. Yes. Like she's yes. kind of breaking the yes. fourth wall here and just straight up yes. talking to the audience about what's going on in a way that works so very well considering it's it's quite a uh, a trite formula at this point but it is still it's a good way to get at him uh because she can she's she's she has the power at this or she she's trying to assert the power at this moment 
Mm-hmm. Because if you're, from her perspective, especially, it's like, who is this asshole? Like, you <laughs> left me on prom night. You come back in here. You, like, invade my space uninvited. You kiss me. And then you, like, say nothing and leave. Like, fuck this guy. Like, I'm like this is nonsense. <laughs> what do I, yeah, I'm going to call you out on the radio right now. And then we'll, you guys will talk about it next week. But, like, yeah, I'm going to get other callers to call in, too. And, like, give you some shit. Like, it's, it's such a mean, like, from her perspective, it's like, yeah, this, again with this? Like I'm trying I'm trying to get over all this stuff and you're like coming into my life and being ridiculous right now. I don't need this stuff. Yeah, and you're right. It does turn into a kind of trial in the public forum, right? Like mm-hmm. mm. yeah. interestingly enough, the the way she delivers it, the dialogue she delivers in the film is I think better and more thoughtful than what they give her on the page because um uh the whole bit she makes a Rod Serling reference. Right on the page, and this idea that it's an apparition, a time warp, it's weird. And actually, I like how the version she is, the, what what the, the time warp element is the, I'm more hungry. Anyone hungry? The next five callers will get a breakfast from, <laughs> you know, like she, you were back in small town time, and she's kind of like, yeah, let me just ground myself in there, because I'm getting going off the, on the complete tangent, and most of the listeners probably don't care. So you know, let's get back to it. But at the same time, you know, he's out there, and you know he's listening, and you can see he's listening at the same time as he's looking at the feds. And I love the fact that the feds, the NSA guys. I love the fact that they're almost, uh, like they're almost like intrigued. You know, like someone who's just discovered soap operas, and it's kind of like, oh my god, what's going to happen next? You know, <laughs> they're both like so bored. Yeah, they're like what is going on? <laughs> what is I he think doing? there's also the disbelief that a, a character like the character that they are you know hunting for has has this kind of relationship with anybody is also mm, exactly part of it. um I, I mean i do kind of wish there was a rod serling reference in there just for the sake of rod serling but of course a lot of a course. lot of this stage of the script reads very much like an ian fleming novel right with all of the product placements and i think rod serling is Another mm-hmm. one of those where they're just trying to be a little bit intellectual. They're not calling it Twilight Zone because everybody says Twilight Zone. They're yes. taking it a step removed and they're just citing Rod Serling. Yeah. Yeah. The, the line is, it felt like an apparition or some cheap, gruesome Rod Serling time warp I'd been thrust back into without warning. Yeah. There's a strangeness in the air. And I don't mind telling you, I'm a little spooked. And then the yeah, bit that I mean... they... Yeah. It's dialogue, like it's it's it works for it is. I, I, you can see many driver, you know. Yeah. For one thing, it's it's a bunch of guys writing for a woman, and it's like yes, like, it's, true. Like, Good point. Yeah. That's not saying it's beyond many driver to make a Rod Sterling reference, but it's also like put it in her hands. No, you know the the point yeah, of the scene is to be the point of the scene. It's like you know, okay, yes. we can do the dialogue, or we can do like what would what would my character say? I'm sure is what yes. working on yes. with, with Cusack in that moment to what they rehearse yeah. and everything, and so that's what's coming out of it. Which is yeah, why I, I, plays better on screen because you know you yes. have the actors that are actually doing it. Yeah, I suspect this is the, the take is probably one of those ones that Armitage said, "Okay, what would you do? You know, go nuts, do your thing." Yeah, because yeah. she comes back to the actual dialogue at the end when she talks talking about you know a man from the past, a man and all that. So it feels like a riff on what she had, but again, the joy of the film, you know, what they built in the edits, it feels like this incredible sum greater than all the parts that go in. It's. Um, d- I think about- that the the script as written is very much a, like this is a woman in love with a guy, and mm-hmm. and the way that she plays it out on radio, 
is much removed from that. It's much more about like just a shadow of the past rather than the, the relationship mm-hmm. element. And I think, you know, this, this speaks to the, you know, guy, a bunch of guys writing women's dialogue when they're not necessarily mm. that good at it kind of piece. Yeah. I mean, you know, on the whole of the film, I do think the, you know, whether they cast Mini Driver or not, the fact that they got somebody that could just embody what this person's supposed to represent for them, I think shows here. We're like, yeah, we certainly have the idea down that like, yeah, these were two cool kids in school and they just like stopped all of a sudden now they're back together. But what does that actually look like? And yeah, yeah, there's a version of this movie that I think would pale if you had someone that was the sort of like, I've been pining and waiting for you to come back the whole time kind of thing. And that's not the energy she's bringing at all. She's more like, I mean, I got over you, I guess, but it's still like yep. this weird blob of memory that I have of you just disappearing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And now what if you did come back? Okay, well, let's deal with that. That's it. it it's going to be awkward and messy, but like, here we are. Like that's, yeah. it's, it's, it, it, I, I, you know, we can talk about Cusack all day because he's the star and everything. And he wrote the script and he's really good in this movie, but you know, Driver's driver does bring the energy needed for this kind of role because yes. there is such a that there is a worse version of this movie that exists <laughs> that would have like you know more cliches and have an actress that's not able to kind of match a guy like Cusack who you know he's the he brings a you know whether whether it's smug or not he has a he has a a sly wittiness about him, I think, in a lot of roles. And I think that's like something that benefits high fidelity so much as well, where he has a variety of different female characters that are all bringing different energies to challenge him. Um, and like yeah. in this, yeah, you have just one person that's matching him and like, yeah, they're cool kids. Like that's, you know, even when they get to the reunion, you can see it in, in you know, compared to everybody else. Like these were the cool kids in school. You can tell like they were maybe not like the, the jocks or the popular kids, but they were cool. People like mm. people, people like them as a couple together. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Also, this whole scene, Pressure Drop is playing by the special. I like the specials a lot. Mm. And uh, it's such a, like, you know, it's it's not entirely on the nose, but it is fun to have, like, pre- of all songs, Pressure Drop is the song that's playing as they're, like, mm. having this weird, awkward energy together the whole time on screen. Yeah, yeah. No, perfect choice. Perfect choice. But then again, is there a musical choice in this film that doesn't work? We haven't come across it's it It's a yet. great soundtrack. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> both but, volumes. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. It does the job. We're half an hour into the film, we still haven't found a track that doesn't fit. It all fits. It's perfect. There, uh, you know, I, I saw Guardians of the Galaxy three over the summer, and the mm-hmm. big sequence is "We Care a Lot" uh, plays on the song, the on the soundtrack. Oh uh, yeah. And uh, I. I I often get like weirdly protective about songs and movies that mm-hmm. I've heard in other movies where it's like, that's mm-hmm. the gross, you can't, that's a gross point blank song. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It happens anytime I hear like, where's my mind and anything else that's not Fight Club. It's like, you can't. Yep. Absolutely right. <laughs> nope, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Fincher owns that one. You know, the Pixies did it best. Full stop. No, absolutely right. There's certain it, it, it is the the art is it is to make sure that if you're going to use uh, music that we already know, you have to link it to the visuals and the moment in the plot and the timing and the characters. You have you know, all of that. It has to be just so, absolutely just so, for it to then embed with us for, who know the song already or for those who are encountering it for the first time. And I sometimes think that, the, you know, the 90s was... Because in the 80s is where you started to get more and more song-based soundtracks, particularly, yeah. you know... Uh, I mean, I seem to remember reading a, reading a book on that time period where 
I think it was Beverly Hills Cop and Ghostbusters were like the twin st- uh, soundtracks that kind of where the sales blew that wide open and they were like, oh, well, okay, we should be doing more of this in our movies. And obviously it rocketed up from there. But then you also had the whole, then, the, but then you had that Levi's jeans, had that brought back 50s style stuff and suddenly that was also a thing to put into the movies. And I feel like by the time we get to where we are in the 90s, there's so much more room for a greater variety and, and, and I don't think anybody does it quite as well as this. And I feel, and that's including Tarantino who made, you know, that whole crime indie humor crime scene thing crime film thing with these unusual music cuts you know he put that on the map to a certain degree but i honestly feel like for me i've probably listened to the soundtracks to gross point blank and go more times than i've listened to pulp fiction by a long shot you know i know pulp fiction well i know the tracks i enjoyed it you know um the repurposing works you know but i think go and 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 uh one two punch of go and gross point blank. I think those are just much more varied, much more interesting. I like that you're a big go fan. I like go a lot. It was a good movie, but like, well, it, it, it just came up. I've, I've been ta- I was been talking with it with uh, my my co-host for the, one of the other podcasts I used to do, and we were just talking about it the other week um, because it came up in a very different conversation. But it, it, it it's starting to we're, we're going back and looking at certain films and realizing not just how well they hold up, but you know making taking greater attention as to how they were put together and why they hold up you know and i i mean i i I would i would agree with that but i would say i mean i i i've listened to pulp fiction and jackie brown reservoir dog soundtrack but like the 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 greater point that you're making which i agree with is that you by the by this point in the 90s you have and it's not like it's completely new like scorsese's doing it with like mean streets but like oh yeah mean streets yeah or like or like lucas uh, American graffiti, but by the '90s, because there's so many different eras, you know, you have a disco era, you have a, a, a '70s rock era, you have '80s music as a whole, pop music. You have auteurs now that are structuring so many films based very specifically around how to curate albums on either childhood memories or things to things that you can directly associate with. Where that's, I mean, you, you look at movies now, and it's not like there's, you know, if you're making '90s references, it's like. You know, it's not. It's not nearly as. It's not the well's not nearly as large to draw from yeah, for true. specific kinds of things and the ways that you can get from you know Motown music or R and B hits or soul or funk or disco or rock or what. Like, there's so much more to draw from at that point. And that's what this yeah. movie obviously. Is, you know, it's a high school reunion movie, so it wants to. Again, I think that comes from the script writing with Cusack and his boys. You know, looking back at like what was it like for me in the eighties? What is the what's the hits mm. there? And so you can really draw that out for a movie like this that's relying on that. And there's so many different areas you can go to. So you can have a song like Pressure Drop that is somewhat thematically consistent with it, or have ninety nine lift balloons later on. Or, yeah, you know, just whatever. There's <laughs> oh, no. areas there. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. It, it is the all of it, and it does seem to. I, you're right about doing a film now that is set that in that time period and how it doesn't seem to work quite as well because what we're starting to see at that point in across the pop music business is the absolute like even more than the previous 20 years the fracturing of tastes and the micro tribalism is developing and people you know this group have this set of hits that they really think matter and that like the clubbers are all like all about you know um you know a high state of consciousness or you know whatever and it's like then other people are like yeah, but I'm all about that that girl pop that came around at the time, or the grunge bit, and it's all starting to fragment. And so it's actually a lot harder now. And in fact, I think the one guy who knows how to do it, regardless of when his films are set, 
and who always surprises me and always entertains me with sound like this Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe is one of the greats when it comes to music, for sure. He, absolutely. He absolutely knows the, how to hit the time at the time um, when it's happening, which is, that's, that's an interesting skill set, actually, when you think of it. Because like, I look at other directors that have great soundtracks, and it's usually rooted in the past, right? Uh, yep. Even like Edgar Wright isn't like more than one of the more recent ones. It's like it's yep. a great soundtrack to the movies, but like it's always rooted in stuff that's from a different time. Where yeah, Cameron Crowe is a very of the moment kind of soundtrack filmmaker, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think I mean I always enjoy this stuff, but what? Yeah, I mean I think it's no surprise Cusack worked with him. I think you know Cusack certainly hasn't had in this time period an affinity as we were saying in our previous episodes, not just for choosing good scripts, choosing good well, to work with good directors and good cast, but it's also they he's you know the music seems to go along with that. He always seems to be in films in which whether he's producing them or not, music is a key and. I just, I can't, I, I always associate him like with a good soundtrack, if that makes sense. I mean, High Fidelity, the soundtrack wasn't plenty of, of course. Time, I mean, that's a, it's yeah. a great soundtrack. Oh, so much. It, it's good, by the way, as far as like music, you know, trying to call back to a previous time for movies of today, it's going to be nuts when we get to like 2040 and we're trying to reference like 2010s music. And it's like, mm. wait, so what's the, <laughs> what's, yeah. what's that nostalgia going to sound like? No idea, because I got I got nothing for that. <laughs> a lot of Taylor Swift, I guess, on the soundtrack. Oh, and again, that's only going to be for some people, right? Like, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's very different. Um, yeah, no, that is a really good point. It's going to become all like very, very much uh, uh, specific to certain niche audiences rather than the broader sense. And it does feel like this is an era that we're moving away from. Um, so it's kind of hard to do, which is a shame. I often, I often wonder if actually it's going to be sort of like musicals and things, because there's been a resurgence in theatre and musicals, and there's a resurgence. And so many of you know, the younger people I teach often come across things that we would know as films because they've now been turned into a stage musical. And uh, yeah, they hear the sound like. So I wonder if that might be. In terms of like what's popular, sure. I mean, you know, for all we know, like you know, way of westerns will be super huge in twenty forty nine. But like <laughs> the, but um, as far as you know, the music they're using to evoke a certain time period, it's like mm. I don't know what to expect. <laughs> kind of yeah. like we just because like eighties. And I'm not even like I wouldn't even consider myself a huge eighties music guy. There's stuff I like. There's I, I, I'm a, more of an alternative and rock kind of guy, so it's like mm-hmm. okay, and that's why I was obsessed with the Violent Femmes after this movie came out for a while. Yeah, but um, right, but like, you know, that you can still call to specific songs and whatnot. Like you, you can define the era by that music, where and you can define the nineties by. But it's like, it just maybe just because I'm too close to because I'm a nineties kid myself. It's like, is it just weird to hear like certain nineties songs being used as a reference point for a time period? in the same way that the 80s or the 70s are so specific in what you're hearing when you hear those kind of songs. Yeah. Granted, the music was also probably better uh, with those <laughs> times as well. Um, like, you know, it's not like you hear many people's like, oh yeah, they're the Beatles of the 90s. I don't know who that would be. I don't like, I, I mean, could not tell you. Or Oasis, right? Like, and no. That's what they no. want to be. But like, but you know what I mean? Oh. In terms of like actual like reverence for that band to yeah, that great isn't. extent, I don't yeah. Like what would there's no Rolling Stones of the '90s that's like no. that amazing, right? I mean, like, I think I think also it doesn't help that a lot of the stuff in the '90s that makes the impact doesn't last. I mean, 
like a lot of people, you know, so intense. You'd argue that for the that's what the eighties was, and then it's like one hour in the night. Yeah, well, I was thinking of Nirvana. You know, I was just thinking of the fact that I knew some of the sub sub the sub pop bands at the time. I'd listened to some of the proto grunge stuff, but I can remember being in this is my third year at university, and I'm in digs outside Brighton. And my friend Sean, who to this day is still my big like we are music is the thing we we met over and were passionate about. And I can remember here and I were literally prepping dinner on a Sunday night and Sunday night in Britain on BBC Radio One was the new new songs night. Right. You know, the, the group of uh, celebrities that were sitting down with the DJ or minor celebs or, or other DJs and they'd all sit down there and they'd play the new singles for the week. So that's the first time you got to hear the single. And then on Monday, you could go out and buy it. Right. And then that's when the charts start, the numbers start happening. So it was always a kind of pre-release. Let's build up the interest. And I can just. I can still remember just hearing, you know, come as you are, just that first riff. I'm just going, what the hell? Nobody mm. does this sort of thing on Radio 1. <laughs> we hear this, you know, on local indie radio and stuff, or I'd be playing it on a university radio. And I just remember thinking, this is great. It, like, they're not my favorite band by stretch or any stretch of the imagination, but I understand why they hit big and it made an impact. But they burnt out and it didn't last. And I think that's a big part of the 90s is people who... It's moments that don't last. I think it's also the fragmentation of how media is consumed, right? You're no longer at the behest of a couple of radio stations, a couple of TV channels. Everything is diversifying. And that's what's happened, continued to happen, which is why there is no iconic sound of, you know, the 2020s, right? It's because there's a million different iconic sounds, all depending on who you are, right? And and what you're consuming and where you're consuming it. Absolutely. You know, for all the ones growing up, the, everything before them is just there available on streaming services. So they go, they just take it all as it's the same thing and they don't realize where things have come from and when. Um, I'm showing Romeo and Juliet to year eight at the moment. That's in the Baz Luhrmann one. And almost all of these 12 year olds can sing like half the songs because their parents have been playing these songs when they're growing up. But they have no idea. Like they know like maybe two, like the choruses and that's it. But they have no idea who the bands are. They've got no idea what, when it was, why they're in this film. You know, it's really weird because I'm having to, I'm getting them putting their hands up saying, so why is this one playing here? And like, well, okay, have you heard the lyrics? No, not really. Okay, right. Okay. You know, and you have to kind of, yeah, you, the, ref, the referential nature of it all is actually kind of, is dissipating. Mm. Um, and, you know, once you start to explain these things, it's no longer a, 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 a reference that an audience gets, then it's no longer doing what it needs to do. This was Minute 30 of the Gross Point Blank podcast, Debbie Radio 79.5 FM, featuring your hosts, co-writers, and co-producers, myself, Dev Sodiger, and my buddy here, Hugh David. Today's guest, and the guest with us all this week, has been Aaron Newworth of Out Now Podcast with Aaron and Abe, and the regular writer at We Live Entertainment. Aaron, where can people find you online if they want to get in touch? Yeah, of course, at the aforementioned podcast, Out Now with Aaron and Abe. Uh, we talk about weekly movie releases. We do fun commentary tracks, all kinds of stuff. It's a good, good listen. You know, pair pair it with one of these, and I think you'll have a good a couple hours on your head. Uh, I write for leadofentertainment.com for movie reviews, wisebluecom for Blu-ray and Criterion reviews. Uh, my personal blog, thecodezeke.com, for everything I do. It just winds up there eventually. And I'm on Twitter, Aaron's PS4. Uh, I'll just add, it has been an honor to join you guys for the. For, for a minute-by-minute look at Gross Point Blank. Uh, that, this was very exciting to me. I'm glad we were able to make it work out. This has been a lot of fun. So thank you for uh, having me on. It's thank been you. a blast having you on. Thank you for joining Absolutely us. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much. 
Indeed. So you can find us at wherever you are already listening to us or watching us, uh, all good podcast players. Also, that you can follow, watch us and see the video version at YouTube. Uh, check us out on X and Spotify. In all cases, we are at the handle Debbie Radio at Debbie Radio. Sorry, spelled D E B I Radio. Also at our website DebbieRadio.com and for all of those, it's D E B I Radio. And if you want to talk with us, you can join us on our Facebook listeners group, which is Debbie Radio seventy nine point five FM Fan Club. Sure was clear that all of this was new. Concentrating hard like a little girl Smoking for the first time It wasn't a moment It was a feeling